Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. Our topic for this next segment is living life fully. And our second guest is Dr. Ira Bayak. Dr. Ira Bayak is a physician specializing in hospice care and is currently the director of palliative medicine at Dartmouth, Dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center. He is the author of Dying Well and The Four Things That Matter Most. Welcome to the show, Ira, and welcome back, Gloria. Thank you very much. Well, Ira, one thing we want to say uh, to our audience is to make sure that they go to uh, youtube.com backslash open to hope because we have uh, some uh, videos, some YouTubes uh, by Ira, and uh, we also have them by Ira, sorry about that, and we also have them on our website. So you can go to our website and look at those YouTube spots. Uh, they're very, very impressive. Well, Ira, I wanted to ask you, can I call you Ira? Oh, please. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, how did you get involved in the hospice work? You've been working in hospice for 30 years. That's kind of like the beginning of hospice, isn't it? Uh, pretty much in this country. I was uh, in my medic- medical school and then residency training when I got in- interested and involved. It really started from very practical matters of just trying to uh, ensure that the people we were caring for in, in the hospital in Fresno, California, where I was training, was giving the best care to people at the end of life. And in fact, while we gave excellent care through uh, courses of, of illnesses and, and disease treatment, we really fell down. Our systems didn't help us uh, care for people through the end of life. And so we started just by making sure people didn't get lost in the system. They knew who their doctor was, really just the basics. They knew how to get their medications refilled. Um, The county health nurses could find them when they left the hospital. We knew where they were going to be cared for if they had several family members. But what happened, as we dealt with these very practical kind of nuts and bolts issues, I found that in averting crises and really addressing people's suffering, something remarkable happened. Occasionally, somebody would tell me that, you know, this last month with with my mom's uh, illness or dying or our child's illness and dying, as hard and really awful as it's been, has also been some of the best time we've ever had together as a family. Mm. Or I would meet a patient who knew very well that his time on, on this earth was short, that he was, they was, he was in the process of dying. But we were managing his pain and his bowels, and you know he was relatively sure that that his family was well supported. And I would say, you know, Mr. Rodriguez, how are you today? And he'd look me in the face and say, "I'm well, doctor. How are you?" Well, even though even though he was dying, and then we're and then and we're that, trying to admit that people actually died, right? And that hadn't been talked about, particularly at the hospital. We were curing people. It it doesn't get talked about it's, even today. It's kind of uh, an embarrassment that in our quest to treat disease, people still die. But when somebody says they're well during the process of dying, I can only you know I can't ascribe that choice of words always to, you know, well, it's the morphine they're on. Of course they feel well, or it's the, it's the prednisone that they're taking. No, at some point, I have to admit that this notion of being well, being well within ourselves, does not 
only uh, is not only tied to our physical health. That people in their in the time of life we call dying, people can also achieve a sense of well-being or a sense of wellness, and that has really um, uh, kept me in this work. I continue to ask myself, you know, how can I f- not just alleviate physical uh, pain or other distress, but how can I foster a sense of wellness in people and and in their families who are you living know, through a, this yeah. time of life? That's an interesting thought. Even a sense of wellness after the death, even though you're grieving, you can still be well. And And that's true, too. That's think, an interesting thought because uh, I think the uh, the psychology community or psychiatry wants to pathologize grief, and it's not a pathology. I mean, I think you just heard Julie just just very powerfully described her sense of grief. Grief is a horrendous thing to live through. You know, the the loss of a child is truly breathtaking. It's hard to even imagine. It, it's painful to even imagine for those of us who are parents. And yet, in fact, the best advice or counsel that I can give to somebody living through this degree of pain associated with grief is, first and foremost, remember to breathe. Mm-hmm. The grief will take your breath away, and you almost have to just mechanically remember to breathe. On any given moment of any given day, the only thing you really, really must do is take your next breath. And it may start mechanically, but I can assure people that as, as much as it hurts, grief is not an illness. It is, it is not a disease. It is an extraordinarily painful, normal time in life. In fact, now, talk about a little bit about normal and abnormal grief. What what well, is can abnormal I, can I just grief? Say that, that that you know we grieve because we love people. Mm-hmm. Our hearts break metaphorically because we love people, and yet in this, the antidote, if you will, to to this is more love. You have to not only love the person whose loss you're grieving, but also love yourself. And again, that may start very mechanically. If you think about it, if a friend of yours is, is grieving and is devastated, you want them to get, you know, the basics. You want them to have some nutrition. You know, you may have to force them to eat. So if it's you, force yourself to eat. Force yourself to get some rest, some fresh air and exercise. And, and even though it feels mechanical at first, do what is necessary for your own physical health and be gentle with yourself. And that, that was Julie's last uh, suggestion to us all. Be gentle with yourself. Be spacious with yourself. I would add, be loving toward yourself. I like the idea. Treat yourself like a friend, like you would a friend. Exactly. Um, yeah. I think, you know, there, the range of normal grief is very broad, and, and people, um, uh, people will feel devastated for a long period of time, not uncommonly. Or they may uh, feel, I've had people call me up, and after they've gone through a, what I would call a healthy grieving process prior to the person's dying, and in a, in a sense of an illness, in the context of an illness and a non-sudden death, they've really said all the things that need to be said. You know, the please forgive me and I forgive you and thank you for being in my life and I love you. All that stuff that I often counsel people to say before a death. 
And then once the person dies, sometimes people will get in touch with me and say, Dr. Bayek, I'm not sure. I might be in denial because I actually don't feel that depressed. I'm sad, but and that comes in waves. But, you know, I'm also feeling good about myself, and I'm feeling hopeful. And they're worried that they're somehow denying the pain. In fact, however, if you can, and if you have the time to make sure that you're saying the things that would be left unsaid, and you're really you know, expressing your love and honoring and celebrating the person who is dying, not uncommonly after the death, grief is somewhat lighter because complicated grief often occurs because people have second guesses, uh, regrets, you know, the would-haves, could-haves, should-haves. If you can, to the extent that any of us in real relationships, in, you know, in difficult situations, can make sure that we are doing the preparatory work with, with an open heart and with honesty and with lots of love, then often after the death, well, the grieving is, is uh, a little easier. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting where, where you don't have a sudden death like uh, Julie did. Uh, you know, that, that's one thing that I think the hospice program has brought so much to light is that, that there is a journey. Right. And that, you know, one of the things that we do in hospice care is we do normalize the difficult time we call dying. I mean, it, it is people who are dying almost by definition have uh, very serious health problems, obviously. But that doesn't make the process of dying uh, abnormal or a pathology in and of itself. Dying is a normal stage in the life of every individual. We will all go through it, and so will everyone else we love. Right. And, and that is a very good point, and we, we hate to think about that, right? Um, talk about life being there to be fully lived. I know you talk about that. Well, you know, uh, you know, I have a friend, uh, a, uh, a uh, Greek Orthodox priest, who every time he marries a, uh, a couple, pauses in the middle of his homily and says, as we are bringing this beautiful couple together uh, to celebrate times of richness and, and joy in their lives and these two families uh, together, uh, we will also... Uh, we also must be cognizant that we are bringing them together to celebrate and to and to live through tragedy. <laughs> and you know, I have often said so. And they and people actually ask you to marry them. <laughs> <laughs> but in fact, this is part of the richness of life. That in fact, we come together, and our love binds us together to to go through all of life together. And Julie beautifully said it. She said her life is fuller, richer, and more meaningful. It's, it's, it's um, too bad, in a sense, that we have to live through and, and acknowledge the hard times of life. But in fact, that's, full, that's part of full and healthy living as well. Well, well and having right. somebody that we love die, can, we can take it as okay, an opportunity to change our relationships with those in our lives that are still living and to do things that you've said, like tell people I love you and thank you and I forgive you if that indeed is what needs to happen while they're still here. If I was to add anything to this at all, I would say that, um, and I'm actually later this afternoon will be counseling uh, somebody around these very issues, Mm -hmm. um, that at its at its worst, when, when 
and if you're feeling utterly devastated by the death of someone you love so dearly, perhaps it is a child, mm-hmm. um, please remember that that child would not want you to be self-destructive. That, that person who you loved would want you to take good care of yourself, to be gentle with yourself, to be loving toward yourself. At times of such grief, part of the syndrome of grief is that, you, that it doesn't seem like it will ever end, that all the color and joy of life has been drained away. And I, I know uh, that sometimes people feel like they themselves would be better off if their life just ended, if they, if they could be, have it over with. And I worry that the impulsiveness um, that uh, people uh, may experience at that time, particularly when they may have been uh, drinking themselves or, or using drugs to, uh, to diminish their anxiety and their, and their feelings, the pain of their feelings. I maintain a website that's, uh, that's called dyingwell.org, D-Y-I-N-G-W-E-L-L.org. And it has a lot of my writings and things that people uh, have often asked me. Uh, can I can I learn more about you or your books or your articles? And um, and I've just put a lot of uh, things up there that are hopefully are helpful for people living with a, an advanced uh, life limiting illness or or their family members. Great. So uh, so go to that website and uh, Ira is very prolific. You're going to find a lot of great information there. Heidi, uh, did you have a question you wanted to ask Ira? Well, on on uh, our YouTube videos, which Ira did for us, two of them, which were wonderful, Ira, you talk about four words that people can use as they're dying, um, in order to have, in order to die well and have a good death. I hope I'm saying this correctly. And it's the words are, "Please forgive me," "I forgive you," "Thank you," and "I love you." And I love those concepts. Now, what if I've had a death already, and those the person that I love that has died, I didn't say those four things to them. Right. Is there something now I can go back and do, some kind of ritual or something I can do? Uh, there certainly is. I mean, it's clearly easier to complete a relationship when somebody is alive, and, and that's why I spend a lot of time sort of encouraging people to do it now. You don't have to be dying for these words uh, to, to have value. You just have to be mortal. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, or if you're immortal, if you love someone who's mortal, well, that's enough to put you at risk. But in fact, sudden death does occur, and unexpected deaths occur, occur and, and, none, and none of us will have an opportunity to complete relationships with everybody in our life, or it's unusual. Afterward, you know, death certainly changes a relationship, but the relationship still is there. It's, if it wasn't there, you wouldn't feel the grief, you know? In one sense, love is stronger than death, and, it, and, and, and we know that because we grieve the, in an ongoing way, the loss of people we loved and still love. What I suggest is for sometimes uh, I'll work with people or suggest that they do work with a counselor if, they're, if they really feel that there are so many things left unsaid between them and somebody they love. And, and we work either uh, on some ritual that people can engage in. Perhaps it's writing a letter uh, to the person who has died and saying all of those things and maybe, you know, launching the letter uh, with a uh, helium balloon uh, over the ocean. Or I've had people write such letters on rice paper and put them around a stone and throw them into a river that uh, was meaningful for them and, and, the, and the person who has died. 
maybe it's that sort of ritual to give people an emotional sense that in whatever way they are communicating their heartfelt feelings to the other. Sometimes it is working through dreams and using, and I, and I suggest people do this with a counselor if possible, but in, in really being very attentive to the things that you'd want to say and to the person that you love and making them present to you, not uncommonly a person will come back to the counseling session after some period of time, days, sometimes weeks, sometimes months, and say, you know, uh, the, uh, my my husband or my son who I who who died appeared to me in the dream, and in the dream it felt so real, and I was able to say these things uh, to him or to her, um, and and for whatever the reason, something shifts within the person's uh, emotional well-being, so that they have a sense that there's some degree of completion there. Grief doesn't abruptly, but it softens. I wanted to get one last thing in before we have to end the show, because we left a statement that you do get concerned about people who are drinking or using drugs or, you know, whatever. Right. And and uh, do you want to say more about that? And Maybe they should get a counselor if they are. or Counselor or even a close friend. I just want people to know, I want them to be able to remember this interview and these words and, and say, don't do it. If you're feeling like you want to be self-destructive or end your life because you can't tolerate the pain, first and foremost, remember to breathe. <laughs> and secondly, don't do it. Pick up the phone and call for help. If you can't call anybody else, call 911 and tell them that you're thinking about hurting yourself. But don't do it. Um, because, in fact, and having practiced emergency medicine for many years prior to my conversion to doing pure hospice and palliative care, in fact, I know that many times when people have attempted suicide or tragically committed suicide, they were just having a really bad day. Mm-hmm. And had they not done it, well, darn it, that day would have passed, and they would have had another chance to work through these difficult times. And as, as you know, uh, Julie Langroth clearly uh, showed us in, the, in your most recent interview, um, m- almost always things get better over time, and life can still be rich and full and have joy. Absolutely. And I love your thought that love is stronger than death. Mm-hmm. It is. It really is. It's very important. So... What about anger? What 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 can we do with that? And forgiveness. Well, I I think you know I think anger is an entirely legitimate emotion, and I I deal with it mostly when people have been you know um, have been wronged. Somebody has transgressed them, and they think I can't possibly forgive that person. And you know, so what I often say is, if you if you if you've been wronged and you really really want to stay angry, you know, fine, you have my blessing. But it's not the only emotional option available to you. And it turns out that forgiveness is a sophisticated emotional strategy for, for getting rid of the baggage of our own anger that was engendered by something bad happening to us. You have the ability to take that anger and lose it. Like, it's like emotional economics. You know, if somebody loans you money, excuse me, if somebody... Uh, you loan money too, and they never paid you back. That debt can grow as it get, as it gathers interest over time, 
Or in business, you can take the loss one time and be free of it. It doesn't mean that you, you forget about it or that you, you know, exonerate somebody from doing you harm, but you don't have to be carrying that baggage forever. You know, well, forgiving you have the opportunity, you have the opportunity of, of getting rid of that toxic um, feeling. And, and yes, you're going to adjust the, your expectations of the person who, who you've been angry at and who wronged you. You're not going to trust them as much. You're not going to be as vulnerable to them. But you can let it go and, and really get back in touch with, um, with some joy in your life. You can, uh, you can realize that they're probably hurting too, that they're imperfect too, that even though that they may continue to be obnoxious, that's their thing. It doesn't have to impact you and your own emotional well-being. I, I just find that a lot of times people who've suffered a loss are so stuck in anger. Yes. Either at themselves or somebody else or, you know, who was driving the car or, you know, they, they get so stuck in it that um, it's difficult to move on. Well, you know, um, it, that's absolutely true, and, it, and it's... Uh, it's um, so unnecessary. You know, remember Lily Tomlin, the uh, comedian, mm-hmm. she once observed, forgiveness means giving up all hope for a better past. <laughs> and there's a lot of wisdom in that. Mm-hmm. It does. But it means accepting that the past need not control your future. You can, you can reestablish health by loving yourself and by letting go of the baggage that you're carrying from from previous emotional wounds uh, that you've acquired o- over life. I think that's a, a great point to end with, and thank you so much for being on our show, Ira Bayak. It's been great having you on. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.